work on the temple stopped and there was just a, a basic foundation with nothing on it. And people would see that and grieve over what was. And then we fast forward to around 520 B.C. And there's a new king in town, a new Persian king, and his name is Darius. And Darius continues to perpetuate the uh, opportunity for the people to have freedom of religion and to worship. But now God uh, decides to speak through a man named Haggai to encourage the Jewish people to rebuild the temple. And as you study your, your Bible and the history of, of our faith, that temple would be called Zerubbabel's temple. And it would be expanded on later and become Herod's temple. And then in 70 A.D. it was all destroyed by the Romans. But here we are, and God speaks to this prophet named Haggai. And Haggai speaks to the governor of Judah named Zerubbabel. He worked for the Persians. He was appointed by the Persians. He spoke to a man named Joshua, who was the high priest. And he also spoke to the remnant of the people of God, the Jewish people. <coughs> there are four oracles of Haggai in this little book. Today we're on the third one. There's one in chapter 1, two in chapter 2, and one next week in chapter, at the end of chapter 2. And each one of them tells when it was given and what God desired the people to hear. The main thing we're going to talk about today is the condition of our hearts. Is God not only our number one priority? Are we fully devoted to God? But are we being, through His help, are we being holy? Are we producing good fruit in His name? So let's think about that as we begin with our hearts. Let's pray together. Thank You for this morning. Thank You for Your Word, Lord, and thank You for our worship today. Thank You for divine call as they have led us so well. And now as we center our hearts and minds on Your Word, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to You, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Have you ever had your heart really set on something? Like, you really wanted something and that's all you could focus on? Maybe you wanted to go to a certain college. Uh, some of you in Divine Call, maybe that you just wanted to go to Liberty. That's all you wanted to do. You just focused on that. Or others had a, a certain school in mind. Uh, I, we have some friends whose son got a full ride to another school in Virginia, but he had his heart set on the University of Virginia, and they didn't give him any money. And somehow his parents, I don't know how it all worked out, but he had his heart set on the University of Virginia, and that's where he went. He didn't want to go anywhere else. Or maybe you you've ha have had or have your heart set on a once-in-a-lifetime vacation. You've always wanted to go to Alaska, and that's, you've set your sights on that, and there's no other, right? Or maybe there's a certain person that you, or boy or girl, that you've had 
your heart set on and you didn't want any other person. Right? You can think about that. Or, like many of us, there's a certain car that we'd like to have and we don't want anything else. When I was in uh, middle school and high school, I loved old cars, old hot rods. I subscribed to Hot Rod Magazine. I still love old cars today. And my dream car then and still is a 1969 Chevy Camaro Rally Sport. Couldn't even afford to touch one today. Very expensive. But in uh, Hot Rod Magazine, whenever I'd find pictures of those old Camaros or some like it, I would rip them out and I would uh, hang them on my wall in my room. So if you walked in my bedroom, middle school, high school, all you would see were these old uh, Camaro pictures, right? So I had my heart set on that old old, old, um, classic car. When we have our heart set on something or someone, that's, that's all we really want. And we spend lots of time and energy focusing on them. Nothing else really matters to us. And Jesus understands these longings that we have. He understands that and meets us right there. I believe he's crystal clear when he said, do not store for yourselves, uh, store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. And Bob's translation where rust and bondo can do in that old car you want, right? But store up for yourselves treasures on heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there what? Your what? Your heart will be also. Jesus wants our undivided hearts. Hearts fully devoted to Him. The Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians 3.1 or 3.1 and to um, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And the psalmist in Psalm 86, 11, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Jesus is teaching his disciples that they needed to have hearts fully devoted to him. And he knew that he would not be with them but a short time, and knew that they needed to have their hearts in the right place. I believe that these same thoughts are echoed in the book of Haggai. As we continue to study this ancient prophet, I'd like to focus on living lives that are holy and that put God first. And we talked about that in the first message from chapter 1. But today's oracle goes uh, one step further that God wants um, us to make Him our number one priority, but He also wants us to live different. He He wants us to be holy. That's what holiness means. It means to live different. That somebody sees us out in the community or at school, at college, on campus, in our neighborhoods, in the cafeteria, at school, in the workplace, and there's something so different about us that they say, you know, there's something about you, you know, I don't know what it is, but you just don't get rattled, you're kind, uh, you're not um, arrogant, you don't seem to get flustered. What is it about you that's different? And that is the work of Christ in us, the sanctifying work of Christ in us that enables us to live lives that are holy, 
that other people see and gives us an opportunity to tell them the reason for the hope we have. Make God first priority. Don't be discouraged. We've heard that from Haggai as well. And seek to live lives of holiness. And when we need a do-over, through God's grace we receive as many do-overs as we need, right? There are two reminders concerning holiness that we see in verses 10 through 14. If you're, take, if you're a note-taker, I'm going to give both of those to you now, so you can write them down if you want to. The first it, reminder is the holiness of the task does not make one holy. The holiness of the task, what we do for God, doesn't make us holy. And the second reminder is the holiness of the place does not make one holy. So serving God, doing some works, some good works for God doesn't make us holy. And coming into a sanctuary like this or a Sunday school class doesn't make one holy. Now back to Haggai. This oracle of Haggai occurred three months after the beginning of the temple construction. And you'll know that it took five years for all of the construction to take place, and they ended up completing it. These words came when the reconstruction was in jeopardy. God spoke through Haggai to encourage that the construction would continue without interruption. But when Haggai spoke this time to the people, he did so in a question-and-answer format with the priests. The priests really wanted to see all of this happen, but apparently they had some concerns, some serious questions. And one of the major problems was that the funding for all of this came from an evil empire, the Persians. Yes, they granted freedom for them to return to their homeland. Yes, they granted freedom of religion, but the Jewish people were still under a foreign regime. And the silver and gold that the king allowed to, to return to the land, yes, it was taken by the Babylonians from Jerusalem and hoarded by the Persians, I mean by the Babylonians, and then uh, kept by the Persians. That money, they thought, was tainted, and it was coming back, and this tainted financial resource is going to taint our temple and taint us and cause us, our temple and us, to be defiled. And so there were these questions and doubts that they uh, had, and they needed some help. I imagine there was murmuring, and so God gives these words to Haggai to help them to understand uh, so they could continue in this process. So read with me uh, verses 10 through 14, and we'll seek to expand on that a little bit. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priest what the law says. If a person carries consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew or wine or oil or other food, does it become contaminated? Meaning, does all of that food, wine, does it become contaminated? And the priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. And then verse 14, then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation, speaking of the Persians. 
Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. The basic truth in verse 12 is that holiness does not spread. Because the consecrated meat and the consecrated garment touched all of these other foodstuff doesn't imply that they become holy. And it wouldn't imply that another person in contact with them would become holy, right? Holiness is not transmitted. The basic truth here in verse 14 is that because the Persian soldiers were unclean, they had obviously um, been, they were not a ceremonially clean people. They were uh, outside of the family of Judaism and were considered defiled people. Uh, the, the truth in verse 14 is that because the Persian soldiers were unclean, that their offerings were unclean, and that these resources coming into the temple may have also been unclean, tainted the temple and the people. So, there, oh, it's, it's difficult to kind of make sense of this, but this understanding of holiness not being transmitted and the defilement of the resources from the Persian government not defiling the temple and the people means that the people didn't need to worry about that. They could continue along in this assignment to rebuild God's temple and let God take care of the rest. I think Haggai is saying that neither holiness nor unholiness can be transmitted. Now, if you're like me, when you read this, you're like, what does that mean, Pastor Bob? Let me go to my daughter's 10th grade biology class as I was helping her study for a recent test, and maybe we can make a connection through osmosis. Osmosis is one of the amazing things in God's creation. The cells in human bodies and animals and plants are, trying, are always trying to, uh, to seek equilibrium, to seek balance. Osmosis is the way that plants take water into, from the ground into their root system and are nourished. Um, and every cell has a um, human and animal cell has a membrane, and that membrane will seek equilibrium. It'll seek homeostasis. And if it is in another liquid that is uh, chemically different from th than it is, then that membrane will allow some of that solvent, like water, to pass through, but not all, but but um, not the other chemicals that could throw it off, right? And so, um, osmosis is God's way of helping our cells be healthy and strong and do the work that they're supposed to do. Osmosis uh, is amazing. I consider it a miracle. The plant doesn't say, I'm going to osmosis today. Uh, my cells didn't wake up this morning. You know what? I think I'm going to osmos today, right? It, it's something that happens and is just really amazing. But I can't expect to learn that way. When I was in high school, I worked at Kroger and would often have late hours. I worked 30, 35 hours a week through high school. And Latin was first period. And Miss Rouse, bless her heart, tried her very best, and often I would fall asleep in Latin class. And 
My hope would be that if I'm sleeping there in Latin class, that by osmosis, the Latin would just come into my brain, and I would learn all of those um, parsings of the language, and I would um, learn the stories that she was telling and all of that, and do really well on the test. And it just didn't work that way, right? All right. In, in the, this is to help us understand that holiness doesn't happen by osmosis. Uh, you and I can, cannot pass on holiness or we're not made holy just because we do a good work for the Lord. Paul writes, we are saved by grace through faith, not by works, lest no man would boast. Our salvation, our justification, those words are interchangeable, comes uh, by God's grace through the faith that we have in Jesus Christ not by any works. Now, James said faith without works is dead, so we know that works are a vitally important part of our faith, a, a, a byproduct of our faith, but we are not saved by works. And so, in this old ancient book of Haggai, I believe that he's helping the priests to see that um, they're not made holy by any, good, any work that they're doing, and they're not to be defiled by some unclean work that the Persians might have done that they come in contact with. I believe this chapter is helping us to understand sanctification. We are made holy. We are sanctified through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And day by day when we worship when we study the Bible, when we pray, when we serve, when we are seeking to work out our salvation, as Paul speaks of in Philippians chapter 2, we are made more and more like Jesus. We become more and more the reflection of Jesus Christ. Paul writes, but God demonstrates His own love for us that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's justification. That's our salvation. And then His sanctifying works described in Romans chapter 5, verse 17 and following. For if by the trespass of the one man, pointing back to Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, as just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, speaking of Jesus, will we be made righteous. And then in chapter 6, verse 4, Paul writes, We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And then this working out your salvation in Philippians 2, 12 and following, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, for uh, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. It is God who works in us to bring about sanctification, this holiness 
It's not any good work that we do. It's not showing up to be involved in a Sunday school class. It's not coming to church. It's not giving an offering. Those are all important things, but those in of themselves do not make us holy. We are made holy because of Jesus and because of the Holy Spirit who has come into our hearts and has changed us and transformed us into new people. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that we can understand the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. And then in the end of chapter, uh, this part of chapter 2, we see a, a threefold challenge. And I'll be very brief here. In verses 15 through 19, there are three, there are three challenges. And I'm just going to summarize it for you. There's a, a challenge for us to reflect on our past, uh, and there's a challenge to reflect on our present. Two times in verse 15 and then verse 18, we are to examine our heart. In verse 15, to look at the past and see how bad things were. And then um, in the present, in verse 18, to look at the lay of the land and the economic conditions and the things that could keep the temple from being reconstructed. And then, pointing us to the past, you can look at the present, and then he's challenging us to look at the future, that God's blessings cannot be contained. So examine our hearts, we are, to examine our hearts, to do the good work of confession and repentance, to turn to God, which is the reason why the people were allowed to be taken into Babylonian captivity in the first place because of their continued disobedience. And God says, turn from those, learn from those mistakes in the past, turn from your ways, and de devote your hearts to me today fully. And I will pour out so much blessings on you that you will not be able to contain it. In verse 19 of chapter 2, give careful thought. Is there, any, is there yet any seed left in the barn? No, the Persians, they've taken it all. Until now, the, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not yet borne fruit. Have not yet. That means there's a harvest coming. And then he says through Haggai, from this day on, I will bless you. That's the promise of God. No matter what happened in your past, and no matter the hopelessness that you see today around you, I'm going to bless your future if you turn your hearts toward me. If you follow me with fully devoted hearts, give me your undivided hearts, and I'm going to pour out blessings on you. I'm going to enable this temple to be reconstructed, and God's people once again will be able to come and worship, and this area will once again be made holy as it should be. And I'm reminded of what Paul says in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And Paul said, Amen. Thank you, God, for saving us. Thank you, God, for your sanctifying work in our lives through the Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, for giving us do-overs that we can learn from our sins and our past and follow you in the future. We thank you for your grace. 
John Newton is the author of the great hymn, Amazing Grace. Many of you know that. You also probably know that he was the former captain of a slave ship. uh, John Newton experienced the blessing of God firsthand. A while before his death, at at the old age of 82, a fellow minister came to have breakfast with him. Family prayers followed the meal. John Newton's sight had about left him. He could not read. So he sat and listened as his minister friend read from Paul's letter, first letter to the Corinthians, the 15th chapter. And when his minister friend got to verse 10, these words, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And Paul writes that. John Newton began to speak. And this is what he said. I am not what I might be. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. But I thank God I am not what I once was. And I can say with the great apostle, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you for giving us do-overs as often as we need them. Let us pray.